Okay, total sidebar. The first time that I've heard you betray that you're from the upper Midwest is you said grandpa. Nothing else betrays that you are from South Dakota. Did you? I said what? what you said grandpa. You don't say grandpa. grandpa. You say grandpa, right? So. Oh, yeah, grandpa. Yeah, gra- right? grandpa Liggett, grandpa yep. Linger, grandpa Hill. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know what you're talking about there because, you know, I used to. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Wally Wingert has a voice you know, whether you know it or not. From the original promo voice of the PAX Television Network to the announcer for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno to John Arbuckle on Cartoon Network's The Garfield Show, Ant Man from the Avengers animated series, The Riddler from the video game series Batman Arkham, voices in popular mangas including Bleach and Tiger Bunny, among others, as well as guest voices on adult animation shows. Some of my favorites include Harvey Birdman, King of the Hill, The Simpsons, and Family Guy. Wally is also one of the voices that you'll hear on Disney's revamped Pirates of the Caribbean ride. He has one of the most eclectic collections of vintage toys and Hollywood memorabilia. He even has a puppet room. Yeah. (laughs) So I've had the pleasure of knowing Wally for over 30 years, and today hopefully you'll get the opportunity to know him a little better too. Let's talk voiceover, Wally Wingert. Hello, Brian. Hello, Wally. How the hell are you, buddy? Doing pretty good. Just had a fun weekend and uh, had a busy week last week. Looking forward to another busy week this week. So it just it keeps churning on. You have had busy weeks now for about the whole 30 years that I've known you. What's the <laughs> secret, dude? Well, you got to you got to invent a lot of your own stuff. You got to keep yourself busy for part of the time. And sometimes other people keep you busy. But a lot of that is up to you to make your own life interesting. So I, I always dabble in a lot of different stuff. So uh like to keep it interesting. A good friend of mine who works with you on some stuff, I just asked her, so you know Wally Wingert? Because he's Brian's friend and I've not met him. And she said, yeah, absolutely freaking talented lunatic. <laughs> Crazy like a fox. Well, you kind of got to be a little bit of a lunatic to be even in this business in the first place, as you well know. It's uh, it's not for everybody. <laughs> no, it's not. It is not. No. Um, so Wally and I met... As flagship staff for 94.7 The Way. <laughs> really? <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. Yeah. Yeah. We were both on the flagship staff of uh, the Jazz New Age format um, that debuted in L.A. back in, what was that, 87, Wally? Valentine's Day of 87, it went live. Yeah. Well, yeah, and wasn't it something like, if I remember right, it had been something else, and then one day they just came in and said, hey, by the way, we're changing the name to The Wave, and it's going to be this, or am I remembering that wrong? Well, they were the Mighty Met. They were K- they were KMET, the Mighty Met, 94.7. Legendary album, rock station. Album rock station for many, 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 many years. Yeah, they were one of the first, actually. They, they, they became album rock in 68, and they actually helped define the format. Yeah. So like B. Mitchell Reed and Tom Donahue and a whole bunch of those guys who started off in San Francisco. Oh, wow. And, you know, they were friends with the Grateful Dead and Starship or Airplane at the time and all those people. Yep. They actually migrated down to L.A. And a big part of that was to work at KMET. So that was the Mighty Met. I believe the movie FM 
uh, was loosely based on KMET. I could be wrong. Yeah. I didn't know that. I certainly, <laughs> it certainly wouldn't shock me. Yep. About two weeks before the, the changeover, this was the day that I was told I was hired and I was supposed to start at KMET. And I was so ecstatic. I was out of my mind ecstatic. And all of a sudden, I got a call and, and someone said, hey, are you sure you're going to work today? Because I heard they just fired everybody. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Crap. Yep. They actually did. They fired the entire staff. And then and that was one of the reasons why I was brought in uh, along with Wally and some other people. We were the replacement team. And so for the first two weeks, the whole thing was just segued and there was no talking. And the only talking was an amazing voiceover guy named Michael Stull, who had this very deep, very dry voice. In fact, he was the first voice of Fox Network. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just came on and it was like 12 days. And then you just heard this bong, yeah, bong. And then and it went down every day, every day, every day. And then it got down to the hours. Nobody knew what the format was going to be. They just knew that there was a big change. There was no social media back then, so nobody could tweet about it and uh, ruin the uh, experience. Ruin the surprise, right. And yep. everybody, there was such a buzz going on about what was going on. And when they did the transfer into the new format, the first song was Set Them Free by Sting. And all of a sudden, this really weird stuff started happening. It's like there were little time markers and little little vignettes. Um, they called them slice of life vignettes that were these four voice actors who did these little skits. They were like, you know, between 30 seconds and a minute and a half. And they were just like normal things that were going on in people's lives. But obviously they were well scripted and, and crafted to appeal to the target demo. Rob Paulson was one of the first VO guys on that, I think. Rob Paulson was one of the first VO. He was one of those four guys, right? Yep. So talk about legendary voiceover guys. And then they actually recorded all that stuff at Mark Grau's studio. Oh, wow. And at that time, it, he was still in Hollywood, in fact, that's how I met Mark is because through that I got connected and then Mark needed some help with uh, like an evening engineer. And so I he, he graciously took me on as a charity case and I learned a whole incredible amount about engineering. But one of the fun things about all that was on weekends, Wally and I would go in and Wally... Huge Dr. Demento fan, right, Wally? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Since I was about 17 or 18, actually. So he came to me and he said, you do production, right? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I do production. And he goes, would you mind helping me with some stuff? And I'm like, no, sure, go ahead. So Wally made his own songs trying to get on Dr. Demento. Well, I didn't try. He actually had played about a dozen uh, of my songs throughout, uh, this is probably from 1979 all the way to 89. So for 10 years... He'd actually played 13 or 14 of my songs. I used to send him songs from, oh my gosh. from South Dakota when I used to live back there. And uh, I didn't realize you had already been airing stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. From South Dakota. Well, one of the first things, well, Dr. Demento actually helped me um, when I moved out here in 87. So I'd had a relationship with Doc from sending him a lot of tapes uh, back when I was working at KELO in Sioux Falls as a DJ. And I had sent um, a song called Chiller, which is a parody of Thriller, Cheapest Tattoo, which was a parody of Sweetest Taboo. So I had sent him a good handful of uh, songs from South Dakota. So when I came out here to Los Angeles in 86 to kind of just look around for a week and see if I wanted to live here, uh, one of the stops was over to Culver City. 
uh, to the Westwood One Studios, and I met Robert Young, uh, Doc's producer, and Doc had me actually on the show uh, as a guest, which was amazing. And he recorded two shows that day, I remember back in 86. The other show, his guest was Leon Redbone. And I was always a huge Leon Redbone fan since I saw him on Saturday Night Live back in about 1975, I believe. And uh, I thought, well, this is great. So I was meeting Leon Redbone, getting a picture with him and Dr. Demento. And I thought, yeah, this is the place where I really need to be. So yeah, when I uh, decided to move out here, Robert Young uh, was kind enough to uh, get help me you know, get set up. And uh, I got a I already had a friend that lived out here from Sioux Falls, and I was, you know, sleeping on his uh, couch for a while, which was very uncomfortable. So Robert Young set me up with a futon and said, "No, no, no, here, here's a futon. You'll be much more comfortable." So uh, yeah, I kind of owe a lot to uh, to Doc and his crew. But that begs the question: Is a futon more comfortable than a couch? It is because it's meant to be slept on. Couches, yeah, not so ah, much. I guess I just had cheap futons back then because mine always felt like sleeping on a rock. Well, no, this was nice foam rubber. It was very small because I'm about six one, and this thing was only about five foot and maybe eleven inches long. So you know, my feet would <laughs> would hang over the the edge. But it was better than sleeping <laughs> on that that stinking couch. So um, cool. But yeah, Doc, Doc, I owe him a lot for helping me out when I first got out here. So obviously, you started in South Dakota doing radio right? That's how you got out to LA and ended up doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. What was the transition for you? Because a lot of people, once they get into radio, that's what they do, right? How did you basically escape radio? Uh, I just quit. I just (laughs) saved my money and said, nah, I got to get out of here. Well, that's one way. Yeah. I just quit and everybody, well, I had been telling people I was going to move for for about a year and they were like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, sure, 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 sure. So uh, I finally did. And uh, I, I think I was about Maybe a half an hour ahead of a blizzard. There was a, it was, I think it was January 10th, 1987. And I had this old station wagon with 110,000 miles on it. And I was getting, getting it ready to pack it up and head out. And I just didn't really have a specific date that I wanted to go. But there was a blizzard on the way. And I said, you know what? Today's the day. So I packed up my car and <laughs> cast it up and said, love you, Ma. Love you, Pa. I'm, I'm out of here. So I, uh, I beat the blizzard out of town by, by about a half an hour. And my first uh, stop that night was to see a friend in Kansas City. I know I stopped in Albuquerque. I had three or four stops on the way. I wasn't really in a hurry to get out here. I just was going to kind of take my time. And it's a huge change of life. And I was 25 and I was, had a lot on my mind. So it was kind of cool just to play tunes in the cassette deck of my car <laughs> and just kind of drive and think about, you know, what the hell am I doing? And is this going to be a good thing? And I, But I got to do this. I got to give it a try. And uh, in retrospect, I guess it uh, was the right thing to do. It all worked out. So did you go out to L.A. with the express thought of I'm going to be a voice actor as opposed to, for instance, just a DJ in a bigger market? No, I'm going to be an actor. I wanted to be, you know, uh, on camera in movies and TV shows and different things. And I quickly lost interest after I really found out what the you know, on-camera acting market was all about. I quickly lost interest in it because I wanted to be, you know, a man of a thousand faces and change my appearance and do all this different stuff. And mm-hmm. and they, they didn't seem to want that. They just wanted types. Right. You know, you walk in and they say, well, you're not really the, the type we're looking for. I'm like, well, what are you talking? You haven't even seen me act yet. <laughs> so I, I quickly got tired of that. So I met a, a guy who had interned for a summer at a voiceover agency. And I said, man, I just really, you know, I, I love, you know, acting, but I just, uh, on camera acting, I, I didn't even call it on camera back then. I said, but just, you know, acting isn't really what I thought it'd be because it doesn't, doesn't seem fun to me. And he said, well, hey, uh, I interned at a voiceover agency over the summer. 
and uh, I'll send your tape over. I, I said, great. So, of course, we were working at the Wave, so I had easy access to production room. Yeah. So I made up my own tape and put some music behind it, did a bunch of stuff, and sent the tape over, and they and they signed me. And who was that? Uh, well, it was the Charles Stern Agency. So it was uh, it was pretty great. Sent my tape over, and like, well, I've always loved cartoons, and I've always loved animation, and this would be really fun, and I've always done character voices on my radio show, so this seems like more of a, a match made in heaven than maybe on camera for me. Sure. So um, he ended up retiring, I think, three or four years after I signed on, and then his associate, Christine Wallace, had opened up her own agency, so I uh, followed her over there. Uh, I think my first official voiceover job was Fresh Prince of Bel Air. That's not a bad gig to land, dude. Yeah, it was. It was pretty good. It, it was uh, like a, a lottery announcer or something, and I was like, "Well, this is pretty cool." And I was by then, I was working overnights on the wave as a as a DJ, so I had my days free to go do this stuff, and it didn't conflict with my work schedule. So, do you still get residuals from that gig? Yeah, I get the thirteen, fourteen cents every once in a while. So, I'll check it. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. The gift that keeps giving. Right. <laughs> and then Christine actually had me audition. She knew I did puppets, so she actually had me audition uh, for Murphy Brown, where they needed a, a puppet character. And I said, uh, oh, yeah, I can do that. So I took one of my one of my puppets over there, and there was about eight of us auditioning, four guys, four four ladies. And they needed one guy, one girl as, as kind of a team. So I go in, I audition. And I'm in the room, you know, the, the producer's room at Warner. I'm like, this is, this is big time. This is great. So um, I got the puppet and I do the thing. You're like, okay, well, we picked this guy and this girl. So uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you. And I'm like, oh, okay, that was fun. So I got my puppet, put my puppet back in the bag, and I'm walking back to my car. And I, there's this guy running after me. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I'm like, he's talking to me. So I turn around and he says, hey, hey, they, they, want, they want you to go back upstairs. I come to find out the guy that they picked wasn't available the week that they were going to be doing the show. He was out of town or he was doing something else or he had another gig or something. So they said, well, you're our second choice, so you got the job. And I was like, wow. See? It's that old Hollywood lesson. Sometimes it's better to be available than first. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> and strangely enough, the guy that was originally picked to do it uh, was a guy named Don Lewis, who was a, a very famous puppeteer, probably still is, around the Los Angeles area. Uh -huh. He was responsible for making the big life-size puppet rig for the Beetlejuice graveyard review that they had at Universal, where Beetlejuice would dance with the two zombie, shrunken head zombie characters. Have you ever seen that? I have not. No, I haven't. But didn't, didn't you actually work there? I did. Well, that's the weird turnaround story, is years later, I would work with that guy, loosely anyway, wearing that puppet rig for four years, doing the uh, Beetlejuice Graveyard Review. So, And um, when I did Saved by the Bell, the new class in the late 90s, I think it was 96 or 97, the character I played was a DJ named Daffy Don Lewis. <laughs> just one of those serendipitous kind of things where just kind of all comes back around three or four times and you're detecting a pattern in something. You're like, oh, this is kind of weird, so... I don't know, maybe I should change my name to Don Lewis or something. Who knows? So the Murphy Brown thing, was that a marionette or was that like a ventriloquist dummy? No, this was a hand puppet like a Muppet. And it was a very funny episode. In fact, when they pull clips for, from some of the best Murphy Brown episodes, this is usually one of them where she rips the puppet's head off. Now, remember, her dad was a ventriloquist. <laughs> of course, Edgar Bergen. Right. Ex exactly. 
And as a young girl, she probably had to fight for attention from those puppets. Well, yeah, that's the story about her. Yeah. 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 It was probably a bit of a catharsis for her to be able to rip the head off a puppet on national TV. But the idea was <laughs> that she was going to go on the show called Mulberry Lane, which was the Sesame Street, you know, kind of thing to improve her TVQ ratings because people thought she was too much of a grouch. And uh, she said, well, I'll go on a kid's show and then everybody, it'll soften my image. So she goes on a kid's show. Of course, everything goes wrong. Uh, Kelbo, my character, starts mimicking her and, and making fun of her, and she doesn't like that. So she ends up getting really mad at the puppet and ripping the puppet's head off, and it was pretty darn funny. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was one of those great moments. And it was a great crew. And, of course, I'm on the set with Candace Bergen all week. How do you go wrong with that, you know? Right. It's funny. I have, I have a lot of old tapes that we used to make as a family because we got a cassette machine. My grandparents got a cassette machines. So instead of writing letters... We would make cassette tapes, and we would send cassette tapes to Grandma. And she, yep, same with my grandparents. That's what we did, too. Yep, it, it was great. And hope, hopefully you still have those tapes. Yep, I do. Because those are gold. Yeah, between the puppets and the, and, and the recordings and everything else, man, what a great foundation for doing characters. Holy moly. Absolutely. And the, and the best thing was is that in any of my studies of cartoons or monsters or puppets, my folks never ever discouraged it. They were always nothing less than absolutely encouraging. Real super blessed. So Now I left the wave after about a year and a half. You stayed on for a while. What was your transition from that to your big breaks in becoming a full-time voice actor? Let's see. Uh, 87 to about 89 was how long the uh, wave was a DJ-less of course, the wave when they started off, it was it was a bizarre, bizarre format. Oh, it was strange because they started with all this really great new music, but then they wouldn't tell anybody what it was. You had to call a wave line and say, "Right, I heard a song at three fifteen yesterday. It was kind of kind of went like this, da 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 da." And but the people that were manning the wave lines were these fifteen year old girls who would put all the wave lines on hold. And on the final wave line, they talked to their boyfriends all night. So nobody could ever get in <laughs> to talk to anybody and find out what the songs were. I forgot about the wave line. Oh, oh yeah. God. They'd pay these little chickadees about 6 or $7 an hour, if even. Yep. And they'd have a man the wave lines. But nobody, nobody could ever get in because they're talking to their boyfriends all night. Yep. And uh, never answering the wave lines. So finally, when they switched program directors, John Sebastian came on, who's now a very accomplished voice actor. He came on in about 1989 and he said, no, we got to have we got to have air personalities because people have to know what this music is. Right. Well, he knew that I was not only uh, an accomplished board operator and knew the music, but I had also had a background in radio as an air personality. So he said, well, I'll put you on weekends. I'm like, great. Los Angeles radio. Fantastic. Sure. So uh, I started off, uh, you know, doing part time and was part time. And then um, the overnights opened up and that's when I quit the Westwood One Radio Network in late 89 and became an overnight uh, air personality at uh, The Wave for a while and then had done mornings for a short period of time and then went back to, to overnights and then ended up leaving uh, altogether in about 93. Group W, Westinghouse, uh, decided to uh, cut back on the staff, so they fired all their overnight guys at all their stations and expanded everyone else's hours. And that's why I quit radio for good three yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last time stuck, so. Exactly. Exactly the why, why radio is, is right. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, I'll say no more about that because I still have friends in radio. I don't want to harsh them too much, but. 
it was a good thing for me. And when I remember the morning I was let go, I said to my program director, Chris, this is the best thing for me. This I'll be fine. This is this is what I need. Because I knew that I needed to get out and do what I really wanted to do. But it was comfortable. Yeah. It was a nice paycheck and everything. So by about 94, I started working and um, doing a lot of independent contractor stuff. And um, a t- 1099 work was was new to me. It was like, what is this? You don't take taxes out, so you got to do it at the end of the year? What? So I started doing a lot of voiceover stuff at a comedy network called Cutler Comedy Network, where I, you know, with my parody song work and everything, I knew a bunch of guys who were tied into that whole thing. Well, there was a network that uh, called the Cutler Comedy Network that did nothing but radio comedy for morning shows, syndicated radio comedy. So they would sing, okay. you know, they would do parody songs and they would do character voices and all kinds of stuff. Sure. And you brought, you talked about Michael Stull. One of the first character voices that I did for Cutler was uh, tonight on Fox. Was doing the Michael Stull, uh, you know, impression uh, on these fake promos. But but we'd sing all kinds of parody songs, and we could actually write parody songs and bring them in. And they'd oh pay my us extra. gosh, how fun! Yeah, it was fun. So if Cutler Comedy and I were that went on for a couple of years, and I, I said, well, I I don't need to have fake stuff on my demo anymore, and I've got real stuff produced professionally by an engineer. This is not you know not produced by me sure but this is sounds really good so i put together another demo with this stuff and of course it was so funny that everybody said oh this is really great we got to sign this guy so well yeah you get people's attention with a with a really clever demo exactly so um i showed up with a new demo and 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 sent it out and uh got uh, with a bigger agency and got more opportunity and signed on with uh, nancy wolfson over at uh, abrams rubeloff and lawrence uh Love Nancy. Yeah, virtually every day to ARL, uh, every morning at 9.30, I'd be there. And, uh, you know, back in the old days when you actually showed up for an audition, you're going to your agent's office and you see everybody else. I met the greatest people in that office. Eugene Roach, great character actor, Joe Campanella. A lot of these people had uh, Abram Zuroff as their their agent. Sure. And I'd be sitting in the the waiting room with all these great people going, I know that guy. I know that guy. Oh, my gosh. And then you'd get to go in and read with them. And that was really exciting. Right. That's something that's really changed dramatically with the internet and home studios and all that. We really miss that community of being in the same room with our peers and with our friends who do the same thing that we do. It's been a big change. Yeah, it's been years since, uh, you know, that's happened. There were casting companies, Elaine Craig in Hollywood. There was voice casters. Yeah. There was Kalmanson and Kalmanson. Right. There was uh, Carol Casting. It was great being able to go around to these places. And we'd go around to these Casting places, sometimes two, three times a day, we'd go, okay, well, Elaine Craig at 1040, then I have an 1120, I think I can make yep. it to Burbank to be at Voicecasters, and at two o'clock, I got to be at Calmson and Calmson, and that's, that was your day running around, and then you'd squeeze sessions in between that, and I think it's coming back, because I was just at Carol Casting's new facility literally two days or three days ago on Friday. Really? Yeah, and she has a great new facility, and a couple of weeks ago, I was at Voicecasters, and it was the old gang again. Wow. So I think it might be coming around again to where the the buyers are finally saying, yeah, enough of these guys from Podunk, Missouri, who are recording in their closet. We we want professional casting places to to give us our stuff from now on. Yeah, yeah. Because that was a lot of fun. Because remember in the old days, it was like 50 guys that would be called in for a Coca-Cola commercial. And now with the internet, it's 5,000 guys. Because like I said, right. you got guys in, in Podunk, Mississippi, and you got guys in um, you know Rhode Island in their closets who, are, who have these agents who 
can get copy. They don't have an office. They just work out of their bedroom, but they can get copy in and they can email it over and they're, they're called an agency and they, they get the copy. And so now they got to listen to 5,000 auditions. So I'm kind of thinking that maybe these buyers are starting to get a little sick of all the 5,000 auditions, probably 98% of which they can't use because they're just, they sound amateur. Yeah. Well, and that is the problem because you look, it, it's okay. If you've got somebody in Boise who is fantastic, that's great. If you've got somebody on the other end who knows this person is actually someone who should be there. The problem that I see is that whether, whether it's a millennial mentality, whether it's something else, I, I don't know, but oh, we can get 5,000 voices, so we're just going to do it. And that's the thing that baffles me. It's like, why would you even want to subject your client or anybody to that? Isn't that your job as a casting agency to say, okay, I'm going to give you 50. I'll I'll even go farther. I'll say, I'm going to give you 200. Fine, 200. I'll give you 200 people, but they're all qualified and they're all likely to book this job. That's the thing that's baffling to me. Yeah, I think a big part of that change, though, is in the fact that We have a whole generation that was never really trained. Instead, they were just thrown in and said, go do it. And so, you know, it's the generation that's raised on the Internet. And so the first thing they do is they turn to the Internet. Right. And so they don't have the same kind of foundation that was there before. Not sounding like not to sound like the uh, old man saying, get the hell off my lawn, you damn kids. But there is value to having that face to face, to having that in-person connection And from the other side of it, I think there's an incredible amount of value from an actor's perspective to be able to have some camaraderie and have a community. And instead, what we're doing nowadays, because everything is from your home studio, you know, with the exception of what you're starting to see now in Los Angeles, New York, and a few other select places. But that's been the the pop-up of all these conventions and meetups and everything else that... I think voice actors are a little bit starved for that sense of community and sense of belonging and also to get the hell out of their home studio once in a while and and commune with other people who understand what it is to be able to get hired to voice something for someone. And and the nice thing, too, is that the old community, voice actors and on-camera actors are very, very different. Yes. Which is why seeing now the proliferation of on-camera actors and voiceover baffles me, because they're not trained like that. And I know because I've been told by voice directors, producers, studio engineers, look, we don't want these on-camera people. They're given to us by the marketing people saying, we got to have this guy in the show because we can market his name. But we don't want to work with them because they're not trained. And it takes three times as long to get what out of them what we need when you know a real voice actor would come in. It takes a half an hour. Right. So it's not their choice. But the, the old days... On-camera actors would, would, you know, they go to an audition and they're looking at each other, you know, with this, giving each other the stink eye, like, well, he's better looking than I am or he dressed better today than I am. There was none of that in voiceover. Very competitive, yeah. And and no, you're right. That's the best part of voiceover. Yeah, if you went in and you said, you know what, look, Nancy, this is not really my thing, but hey, there's this guy named Rob that I know that could totally nail this. Let me get him on the phone. And everybody would throw each other stuff when they just knew that it wasn't kind of their bailiwick, you know? Sure. And you just don't, you don't get that, of course, in on-camera, which is one of the reasons I, I never preferred really to do on-camera. Well, so why is that? Why is the VO community of all... So much more collegial? You know, I'll not even just say acting. I'll say all the creatives I know. It's an insecurity issue. 
voice actors are just by nature more secure people, I think. Uh, more uh, spiritual people, I think, uh, gravitate toward that. Because who doesn't want to go into cartoons and do that kind of stuff? That's that's amazing. And it's kind of like the difference between working for Jay Leno, who I did for four and a half years, who was a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. And some of the guys left uh, after the show ended and went to work on other shows. And they're like, oh, man, it's nothing like working for Jay. Working for Jay was a breeze. You come in here and there's pressure and there's people yelling at each other and it's not at all like to, so it's just it's just about the quality of people with whom we were involved you know the voice actor community is is i think just a little more understanding a little more secure in their yep. talents and abilities than yep. on camera when you're when you're talking about a an industry that's based almost solely on how you look on looks yeah, yeah. that's going to make you a little insecure anyway cuz if you have a zit or if your hair doesn't part the right way someday, or if you just, you know, you're... A little baggy a little, under the little eyes. A little sleepy under the eyes, you know, you're like, oh, man. Anything. But, you know, you can go in and you can go, uh, okay, what am, what voice am I doing today? Oh, I'm doing a, the, the cricket and a talking trash can and a, this, oh, this is great. <laughs> and, and if you look at 95% of the on-camera actors today, they're basically standing in a place and they're mumbling their lines and they're like, that was perfect. Okay, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. what do you mean? The guy, I could barely understand what that guy said just now. I, I had an on-camera friend who said that she was getting sick of not booking on-camera gigs. So she went into one audition as an experiment and said, what if I pretend I don't want this job and just kind of lays my way through it? And which is what she did. She just kind of sat there, slumped in the chair, and just kind of mumbled her lines. She got hired. Oh, my. Because they liked her kind of uh, emo type of thing. Wow. She, you know, <laughs> so she was trying too hard, basically. Ugh. So it's a, it's an industry that, I, it's aspect of the industry I don't really understand. I may get back into it someday just for fun. I did one on-camera commercial a couple of years ago for Dell as a glam rocker. And oh, the one for Dell, right. Where you're, yeah, that was an awesome commercial. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm like, you know, this is pretty fun. Maybe I'll look into maybe doing some of this stuff again. But my heart will always be with, with voiceover. But, you know, the voiceover industry is changing so much for a lot of different reasons. The commercial industry has almost been completely ruined now because of there's a lot of entities around that will make you bid for jobs and they take the lowest bidder, which is great. So a lot of the commercials you're hearing are the lowest bidder. That's really great. Yeah. And there are a lot of them are non-union and there was a a strike that happened in the early 2000s and that that didn't help the cause at all. That basically showed the the buyers, the, the commercial producers, hey, you know what? We don't really need these union guys. We can get my brother to do it. Because he sounds like a regular guy and, and people are going to relate more to him anyway because it sounds like it's coming from an uncle or, you know, a cousin that you trust. And maybe, maybe we'll get rid of the professional voiceover sounding guys and we'll get just a guy who has a lisp and has a nasally voice because, hey, sounds like my next door neighbor. I'll, I'll believe what this guy's saying mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll buy into what he's selling. Yep. And and now there's the whole regular guy thing. Right. And, uh, and regular girl thing. And you get, you know, some of the female voices with with rasp and different things and different characteristics about them. So the union stuff that does exist in commercial is mostly celebrities. Yep. And there's some professional voice. But but 90% now of commercials are all non-union. So they can open it up to the world because they like that regular guy sound and regular girl sound. Hey, let's get real regular guys and real girls as opposed to getting professional voice actors to pretend to be regular guys and girls. And animation now is all taken over by celebrities mostly. Because why would they hire a guy named Wally Wingert 
to come in and do something when they can hire Weird Al Yankovic and get to tweet about it, you know. So celebrities will now work for scale like like we do. The way the cartoon voices are now aren't like they were when I was a kid, when I was listening to Dawes Butler oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, Don Messick and Howard Morris and guys who really did terrific cartoon character voices. Absolutely. Now it's all about a slight amplification of your real voice. They don't want anything, anything really cartoony. They don't want any of that stuff. What they want is just your regular voice and then they, they animate that. So I was watching a cartoon the other day, just out of curiosity. It was a newer one. And it was like, there was like a dog and a cat. And I turned my back. I could not tell which one of the characters was talking, the dog or the cat. They both sounded so similar to me. I'm like, well, which one's talking? And I have to turn around to actually look to see if it was the dog or the cat talking. Yeah. Remember Cat Dog with Jim Cummings and Tom Kenny? Of course. You knew which one was talking. You could turn your back, you'd walk out of a room, and you could say, oh, no, that's cat talking or that's dog talking. It's, uh, it's, all, it's all changing, but um, am I going to just sit here and complain about it? No, you gotta, you got to get into the game, and you got to um, adapt to those changes and, and figure out how to ride with them. So. so how many different animation things have you done over your career, Wally? Oh, boy. Oh. 200, 300? I just say uh, thousands of hours of animation. <laughs> okay. Well, that's fair. There was about six seasons of Garfield. There were um, two seasons of Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes. I was all over the first three seasons of Family Guy and then would, was peppered throughout the other seasons. And then, of course, there's the anime stuff, uh, Bleach, Tiger and Bunny, and all that stuff. Boy, hard to tell. It's just um, really hard to say. So I don't want to I don't want to try and nail you down to one thing, but what what are some of your favorite things that you've done across your career? Well, I love the Garfield show because John Arbuckle is basically me. How I talk to my own how I talk to my own dog and cat. Hey guys, you want to have some dinner? Perfect. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a real musical kind of. You want to get your pet's attention. He, he kind of got to talk like this. Oh, you want a cookie? You know. Um, uh, but the Tonight Show. So that uh, was kind of typecasting, huh? Well, no, it was just uh, it wasn't because um, when I went in, I said, well, okay, so this guy's kind of a dork. He has a, a dog and a cat. He's kind of a lonely guy, and so this is how I talk to my own dog and cat when we're we're alone. I, I think I'll just try that. So. It ended up working, and Jim Davis cast me personally, and I thought, well, this is great. So, Oh, perfect. Yeah. And, of course, working on The Tonight Show as the, uh, as the announcer. Yeah. Only the seventh uh, Tonight Show announcer in history that was you know, full-time, not a sub-announcer. That is cool. And the only, uh, where this is a badge of honor, the only Tonight Show announcer ever so far in history to only do it as strictly a voiceover job. You never saw me. Uh, wow. Interesting. So I was literally the... I was literally the Don Pardo of uh, The Tonight Show for four years, which I thought was really cool because I always loved Don Pardo. You always heard the voice. Right. It's Saturday Night Live, but you never saw him, which was really cool. Yep. Yeah, I thought that was pretty neat. Very cool. And why was that? Why was it that they were never, well, let's just show the announcer. Uh, Jay never liked that Ed McMahon type of thing, to my understanding. He was a stand-up comic, and he liked to work alone. So obviously when he took over the Tonight Show, there's a formula. You got to have your second banana sitting there. And it was uh, a guy that they had cast. Jay just never really liked having somebody else there that he had to talk to. He wanted to talk to the audience. Carson was a, was a TV personality. He wasn't a stand-up comic. Right. He was a TV personality. So he needed that second banana there because he didn't 
necessarily, I don't think, like to throw things to the audience. He liked just talking to Ed on the set. But Jay, Jay purposely, when he uh, took over The Tonight Show, they had the audience, uh, as they usually do, in a different zip code, <laughs> you know, <laughs> watching the show. And, and Jay did Saturday Night Live shortly after he got the, uh, the Tonight Show gig. And, and he came back from New York and said, Oh, it's really great. You know, I was in New York. And, and, and. So he, he liked how, how the audience was really close, close in. Because you walk to the edge of the stage at SNL. And there's the audience. Yeah. And he loved that. Yeah. And he said, I want all the audience brought closer. So they, during a hiatus, moved all the seats closer to him. So that's why when he first came out, he uh, could high five the audience. So he would throw a lot of his comments to the audience. Being a stand-up comic, that was his training. So he didn't need... Well, yeah, that's like being in a club. Exactly. Sure. So the second banana sitting there, oh, that's great, Jay. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, you're a genius, Jay. <laughs> Somehow I can't see you doing that, Wally. It screwed up, it screwed up, his, it screwed up his timing, you know, was it to have that guy interjecting. Yeah. So when they did the Jay Leno show... Uh, in 2009, he said, well, as long as we're changing everything, let's let's get rid of that and let's just have a voiceover guy do it. And I came in with about three other people and we we read and I didn't get the job for the for the run throughs. And I said, well, you know, if they ever need voices for comedy bits or, or anything, you know, have them let me know. And then literally the weekend before they went live, they had me come back in because the guy that they had for the test shows wasn't what they said directable huh he was just kind of one note they wanted a guy with a big voice it's the jay leno show and now jay leno but that's all he could do he couldn't go up he couldn't go down he couldn't change his energy he was just the same so they said well there was this one guy that came in with the long hair he was doing a bunch of different voices and options and let's bring him back in so i came in on a friday and they ran me through a bunch of paces and i said all right thanks a lot so that, that afternoon, uh, my agent called and said, you, you got the job as the full-time announcer. I'm like, wow, this is great. Oh, my gosh. So that lasted for about nine months, and then he was uh, given The Tonight Show back after Conan tanked the ratings by half. <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> and uh, Jay had to come in and save the day. So um, I said, well, okay, nice seeing you guys. Nice working with you. Have fun. And like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, if, you, if you're doing The Tonight Show again, you're going to want the, the Ed McMahon-type guy back and you're going to cast some guy and you know I understand it's not me I don't I'm not on camera so that's fine they said no 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 Jay wants to keep everything just the way it is so we're just going to change the set a little bit so um when we came back I was the announcer of the tonight show and we just kept on kind of doing it the way we did that it is so cool incredible yeah that is awesome yep now the cool part too is that you don't have that traditional deep announcer kind of thing going for you, right? Well, I, I can do it as a character if I need to, but it's not my right. It's not my normal. And that wasn't what you did on the Tonight Show, right? You didn't really do that deep, that deep ballsy. I want I wanted to be Don Pardo, and now it's Saturday Night Live because that's what I grew up on. You know, at the age of fourteen, fifteen, sure, 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 sure. watching that show, going, man, that guy sounds awesome. He's excited and sounds like he's really having fun. And yeah, I could just see him in my mind, like a booth with the headphones on and like a little, like little work light. But when you did Jay Leno, though, you had a lot. You just had a lot of energy, and you were just a great. I mean, you were a great, strong, solid, full of energy voice. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it worked so well. I wanted to be Don Pardo and I wanted to be Mark Elliott who would do all the Disney stuff, you know? Uh, Coming soon to theaters near you, it's Peter Pan. And he had the big smile, so I would always, before we started, 
uh, and I did my 26 second intro each day. Yep. I would have a big smile on my face and I would smile all the way through the whole thing because I wanted to sound happy. And, you know, you listen to Don Pardo with those original Saturday Night Live announcements. He sounded like he was having a blast. Right. That's a guy I want to party with. And you'd hear the, no, 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 just like, ah, that guy sounds boring to me. is one note and whatever. So, But Don, he was all over the place and he, he sounded like he was fun. And honestly, I mean, you're doing the Tonight Show. That's a lot to be happy about. Yeah, boy, it, <laughs> boy, it sure is. There was only a few times where I had to say the names of people that made my skin crawl. But I, hey, as an actor, you got to do it. Yeah. But, but I met some great people on that show and it was unbelievable just really really an unbelievable experience and uh, i miss all those people uh it was like going to see family at the end of every day because you know the first part of the day i'd be doing other sessions and different things and sure and i'd go out and it's fun but then at the end of the day at 3 30 i'd have to be at nbc at alameda in the burbank studios on alameda and bob hope drive yep and i'd drive on that lot i'd be like i can't believe i'm on the the original nbc <laughs> lot and i'm gonna go talk on national tv and one of those experiences that will just never be repeated, but boy, I'm sure glad I did it. Truly living your dreams. That is so awesome, man. Yeah. That is well, so awesome. My dad was always a huge Tonight Show fan when he was out doing traveling salesman stuff because that was his go-to every night. That was his one moment of solace, no matter where he was traveling, yeah. no matter what blizzard was blowing in, making his life miserable. He always knew that in his motel room at the end of the night, he was going to watch The Tonight Show. So as part of his sales work, through the company he worked for, they had a catalog that they put out and they said, hey, if you sell certain things, you'll get certain points for those things. And then you can redeem the points for these, any number of gifts or, or things in these catalogs. So he, of course, was a great salesman and he garnered up a lot of points. So one of the things he got was a tape recorder. One of those old reel-to-reel tape recorders with the really small little oh, three-inch reels. cool. So, right, 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 yeah. So that yeah. showed up, and I'm like, ooh, I like this. So I would take it in my room and record different things and pretend. Of course, I, my voice hadn't even changed yet, so I was still talking like this. And now Laurel and Hardy <laughs> is going to do for you. And so I would work with my own voice and play things back and work with the sound of my voice. And I would learn how to imitate Laurel and Hardy. And I would learn how to imitate Sesame Street characters. And I was working with my voice. So through this tape machine that he got through his company, uh, I was basically training myself. So I said to dad, I said, isn't it funny to you that this tape recorder thing that you won helped inadvertently train the future announcer to your favorite TV show? It's just kind of a weird full circle kind of thing. He's like, yeah, sometimes stuff like that happens. There you go. So what you've been working on lately that you can talk about? Uh, Nothing. (laughs) Spoken like a true voice actor. I have a a whole folder here of NDAs that uh, you sign that you can't talk oh about anything. Gosh. And now they're making you sign NDAs just to audition. Yep. Been through that. It's not even jobs you get. It's just audition. You can't audition until you sign this NDA. I mean, Right. Just to see the script, just to be aware of the audition and see the script, you have to, you have to be sworn to secrecy. Yeah. Yeah. It's what it is because of social media and people- It is what it is. People like to blab. But um, I had kind of a funny thing happen when I saw Avengers Endgame. Yeah. There are lines in there that are being said by Scott Lang, Paul Rudd's Ant-Man. Okay. That I had done in a Disney session. Oh, they had wow. me come in and do the, the Paul Rudd sound alike and read these lines. 
And then I thought I thought it was for the forthcoming movie Ant-Man versus the Wasp. So when I saw Ant-Man versus the Wasp, I said, well, none of those lines I read are, are in here. This, maybe they, there's a whole other scene they just decided to cut out. But when I saw Endgame, I was hearing these lines going, hey, these sound familiar. Oh, <laughs> a year ago when I came in, I was doing the lines for this. Of course, I think they had Paul Rudd come in and actually, once they settle on, on the lines they wanted to keep, they had him come in and replace what I did. Which is fine. It's his character. Yeah. yeah, yeah but it was yeah. just kind of funny to go, oh, yeah, I remember these. So you're a voice stand-in. You're a voice stand-in for the Avengers movie. Yeah, voice double for uh, for <laughs> for Paul Rudd. And I still get a uh, check every once in a while for Captain America Civil War because I think I'm in there uh, doing something as, nice. as Paul Rudd's Ant-Man or whatever. But for three or four years, I've been doing the voice for this digital assistant thing that will be out soon. And that's, you know, that's a whole technology in and of itself. That's different, but uh, they, it takes them literally years to perfect those digital assistants like, you know, like Siri and like um, Alexa and all those. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's that's kind of fun. Now, you did you did one for one of the airlines, right? Uh, yes, I'm the voice of American Airlines. So that's uh, been going on for. There you go. Wow. That's I think almost been going on for like 10 years now. Yeah. So I've been listening to you for several years en route to getting my gold status. <laughs> See, that's it. That's that's exactly it. Everybody knows Wally, even if you don't know that you know Wally. Did you make sure your safety belt was securely fastened about your waist? Thank you for flying American Airlines. There you go. Again, that's the real that's the real smile. You know, I, I put the big smile into the read because people can hear that. You know, people can hear if you're smiling or not. Yeah. So you take American Airlines to go to Disney World, and then you catch Wally on the Pirates of the Caribbean yeah. ride. Yeah, and speaking of Mark Grau, uh, he's in the he's in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride as well. He's, uh, I think right. he's one of the yeah. main uh, he's one of the main hecklers, and I'm I'm a bunch of the hecklers off. Gee, that wasn't much of a stretch, right? Well, <laughs> well it's that it's the theme of the show. It's that full circle. Everything comes back around. You know, the Tonight Show, Don Lewis. I mean, it, it all comes back around. But, you know, when I was when I was on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in 1976, when I was vacationing out here with my family, I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen because I'm right out of the sticks in South Dakota, right? I'm like, this is awesome. I never in a million years thought I'm going to be doing a voice on this ride. And it's going to be probably heard by bazillions of people over the course of decades. I never in a million years thought that that was even a possibility. But And there you go. Dreams come true. Dreams come true, man. They absolutely do. Hey, Wally, listen, we really appreciate the time that you've uh, given us today. This has been awesome to catch back up again. Yeah, fun. Um, if someone wants to catch up with you, what's the best way to do that, sir? Uh, let's see. Website, wallyontheweb.com. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, at Wally Wingert, uh, wally.wingert. Facebook.com slash Wacky Wally's Vintage Toys. And there you go. Plenty of opportunity. <laughs> And we never even made it to the planet Wallywood. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Well, that's for another show. Next show. That's next a whole show. other yeah, show. Next show. All right, sir. Well, listen, we appreciate it. And we will uh, wrap this one up the way we always do. So, Randall. BT. Wally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my cue. And I, I'm afraid I was ill-prepared. I'm sorry. That's okay. We can try it again. Ready? Wally. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Until next time. Thank you. Thanks, Randall. Thanks, Brian. Great time. Our thanks to Wally Wingert, a fun conversation with an incredibly fun guy. Check out wallyontheweb.com to see his latest work and... 
Make sure you take the tour of Planet Wallywood, Wally's own living memorabilia museum. Let's Talk VoiceOver is hosted by Randy Ryan, owner of Hamsterball Studios, delivering the world's best talent virtually anywhere. And me, Brian Talbot, actor and all-around creative guy. If you have comments, questions, ideas for other show topics you'd be interested in hearing, or you just want to let us know what you think, you can always reach us by sending an email to bt at letstalkvoiceover.com. And that'll come to me, and I will answer. Or you can go to our website at www.letstalkvoiceover.com. That's letstalkvoiceover.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk VoiceOver. We'll talk again real soon.